We're looking together at 2 Samuel. Last week we saw one of the Old Testament's clearest pictures of God's kingdom. We find King David searching for enemies to bless. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? Saul was Israel's previous king. And it was normal for the new king to look for relatives of the old king. By the standard rules of kingship, those relatives needed to be found so they could be eliminated. That was the obvious thing for new kings to do. But we saw last week, David didn't do the obvious thing. He wanted to show kindness to the house of his enemy. And what he found when he went looking for Saul's house was a broken enemy, a cripple called Mephibosheth. And we saw how David brought this broken enemy not only to the city of Jerusalem, but right to David's own table. We were told Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And we learned this was not just David's kindness we were seeing. It was God's kindness. The kingdom of God is a place where enemies can become sons and daughters. It's a place where the broken can have a seat at the king's table. And it's important to remind ourselves of that picture from last week because our passage this morning shows us the same king offering the same kindness. But this time, that kindness is rejected. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 10. If you haven't opened there yet, it's page 313, or in the large print, page 481. I'm going to read the whole of 2 Samuel chapter 10. In the course of time... The king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanun their lord, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's envoys shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, Stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, They hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah with a thousand men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. 
On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate. While the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans and they fled before him. When the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Arameans brought from beyond the river Euphrates. They went to Halam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Halam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So, the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. This is God's word. And this passage begins with exactly the same thing we saw last week. The extraordinary kindness of the king. That's what we saw in David's treatment of Mephibosheth. And we see that same kindness here. Look again at verse 1. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. In terms of Israel and the Ammonites, the Ammonites lived there, to the east of Israel. And it's important to realize that the Ammonites were long-standing enemies of Israel. Back in 1 Samuel, we read how they, at one time, besieged an Israelite city. This was during Saul's reign. And at that time, the Israelites in the city offered to surrender. They offered to serve the Ammonites. They said, make a treaty with us 
and we will be subject to you. But this is how the Ammonite king, Nahash, responded to the people in the city. He said, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. So, Nahash was a reasonable, easy-going sort of guy. No, actually, he was the opposite of that. He was a man who liked to hurt and humiliate people. Even people who were trying to surrender to it. Now, as it happens, Nahash was defeated on that occasion. But it gave him a reputation in all Israel. He was not only an enemy, he was a particularly nasty enemy. And now, years after that incident, we're told Nahash dies. Last week, we learned one of the rules of ancient kingship. When you come to the throne, wipe out the family of the previous king. That's the way to make your own kingship secure. Well, here's another rule of ancient kingship. When the king of your enemies dies, there's going to be a time of instability among your enemies. That gives an opportunity. It's time to attack the enemy. You need to take advantage of the moment and you need to do it quickly before the new king gets established. That's what the rule book said. That's the way things were done. But last week we saw David breaking the rule about wiping out your successor's family. Your predecessor's family. David didn't keep that particular rule. And here he breaks the rule about taking advantage of your enemies. Instead of sending an army to crush the Ammonites, he sends ambassadors to show kindness. And when we remember the history between Israel and the Ammonites, we realize this is extraordinary kindness. It's the same kindness David showed Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul. The name Hanun means favored. And here, Hanun is favored with undeserved kindness from God's king. Now apparently Hanun's father Nahash had shown some kind of kindness to David in the past. We don't know what that involved. It was probably when David was on the run from Saul. At that time, David was not Israel's king. He was an outlaw. He was the enemy of Israel's king. So as far as Nahash was concerned, being kind to David was just another way of opposing Israel. Nahash was no friend of Israel. But here we see that David's foreign policy is just the same as his domestic policy. Just as he showed kindness to his enemy inside Israel, Mephibosheth, he wants to show kindness to his enemy outside Israel, Hanun. That's how God's kingdom works. God's kindness has never been limited to just one nation. 
He offers kindness to all nations. His kingdom is a place for every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's not just for people who've been brought up knowing the Bible or going to church. It's for people from every religious background and from no religious background. It's for people who follow false gods and for atheists who deny God. The same kindness of God is offered to all. And it's offered always through God's king. In the Old Testament, that was David. But now, God offers his kindness through a much greater king, the greatest of all. King David reigned for only 40 years. King Jesus reigns forever. And the key issue here is how we respond to God's king. We saw last week Mephibosheth responded by bowing in humility. He received the kindness that was offered to him. So what's Hanun going to do? His name means favored, and he is highly favored. David has broken the ancient rule book in order to offer this man kindness instead of attacking him. And so we might expect Hanun to bow just like Mephibosheth bowed. But look what actually happens in the middle of verse 2. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanun their lord, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys here to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So, Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. Hanun responds here with distrust of the king's kindness. Verse 3 mentions the Ammonite commanders. That's almost certainly the military leaders. And they know the rules of kingship. So when they see what appears to be kindness from David, they either can't believe it or they won't believe it. They either decide this is just too good to be true or they have certain reasons for wanting to keep up hostilities with Israel. And so they try to convince Hanun it's too good to be true. Either way, whatever their motivations happen to be, they manage to convince their new king. Hanun thinks to himself, David has ulterior motives. I can't take this at face value. My advisors are right. I can't trust him. And so we have this crazy situation. An offer of kindness from David is met with a middle finger from Hanun. That's what this amounts to. The way he treats David's envoys is an extreme insult. I've been mentioning the rule book for ancient kings, meaning the unwritten rules, 
the way that things were done. And one of those rules was that envoys were treated with respect. Whatever you might have thought of their boss, whatever you had to say to their boss, the ambassadors themselves had immunity. You didn't mess with them. We have exactly the same rule today. But here, Hanun goes out of his way to disrespect these men. And the aim behind it all is to disrespect David. First, he shaves half of each man's beard. Now today, beards are a fashion statement. They used to mean, I don't care about fashion. That's a fashion statement. But currently, it's a little bit different. It depends what kind of beard you have. Depending on how you choose to groom your beard, it can still mean, I don't care about fashion. Or, if you have a particularly full, shaped, and moisturized beard, and if your beard is accompanied by skinny jeans, then your beard means, I'm at the height of fashion. That's the ambiguous status of beards today. But we need to ask, not what does a beard mean today, but what did a beard mean in Israel 3,000 years ago? That's what we need to know. And the answer is, beards were not fashion statements. They were much more than that for a man. A beard represented your dignity as a man. Every man had a beard. The only exceptions, there were just two, men who were in mourning or men who had taken some special religious vow. And so having your beard forcibly shaved off was an extreme humiliation. And here, Hanun shaves off half their beards, meaning just one side of their face. That looks even more ridiculous than shaving all of it off. And the aim of the beard shaving is humiliation. And so is the other thing Hanan does to them. And we don't need any historical background to this bit. Having to walk around naked from the hips downwards. That is humiliating in any culture. And then in this state... We're told David's envoys are sent away. In other words, they are turned out of the king's presence. They're made to walk through the streets, being jeered and taunted by the Ammonites, all the way to the city gates. That is Hanun's response to the extraordinary kindness of God's king. In chapter 9, we saw Mephibosheth bow in humility before David's kindness. He could hardly believe it, but he wasn't going to miss out on it. Hanun is different. He also thinks David's kindness is too good to be true. But instead of accepting this amazing grace, he's determined he's not going to be caught out. So he gets his humiliation in first. He spits in the face of David's kindness. And as we've seen, David's kindness is God's kindness. 
Unfortunately, many people today respond to God's kindness the same way. They hear the message of the Bible that they have a maker. They're not just an accidental bunch of cells and synapses. They hear this maker loves them despite all their rebellion. They hear he sent his son to die in their place and save them from wrath. They hear they can have peace with God now and in the future and eternity in his presence. They hear about this extraordinary kindness and they decide it's just too good to be true. It must be a fairy tale. It must be a trick. And so they mock. They poke fun at Jesus on the cross. People even did that when he was on the cross in the first place. And they're still doing it. They spit in the face of the risen Jesus. And when people do that, they're making a terrible mistake. They are pushing away the truest love in the world. Don't make that mistake. God's love is not a fairy tale. The history of the human race is the history of God's love. From Eden to Abraham to David to Jesus. It's a careful unfolding of God's kindness to his enemies over and over again. Yes, it might seem too good to be true. You don't want to be taken in. You don't want to be fooled. But do yourself the favor of looking into this. Follow the story. Jesus' birth was not out of the blue. God's son came as the climax of God's kindness. And the God who sent Jesus is the same God we see working here in the Old Testament. Don't miss God's love because you're suspicious. Don't join in with those who mock his kindness. David's envoys were humiliated in front of jeering crowds. God's son suffered even more. The crowds saw him die naked on a cross. And all for love of his enemies. How could we ever distrust the king's kindness? Here in our passage, we've seen David's unusual kindness. But now his reaction to Hanun is equally unusual. What we see next in this passage is the surprising patience of the king. Verse 5 says, when David was told about this, in other words, the humiliation of his envoys, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown and then come back. The surprising part of this verse is what it doesn't say. Where's the retaliation from David? 
Where's the march to crush Hanun, this arrogant little snot of an enemy? It doesn't happen. David provides for his envoys. He gives them a place to hide their shame. And then he does nothing. It's the Ammonites who make the next move. Verse 6 says they realized they'd become obnoxious to David. Literally, they saw they stank to David. That's how they interpret this situation. That's how they see it. David's going to explode for sure. He'll lose it when he finds out what we did to his man. And on the basis of that assumption, the Ammonites don't try to apologize. They don't try to put things right. They decide they'd better go all out against David. They think, well, we've started it now. We better carry it on. And so we're told they hire 20,000 mercenary soldiers from Aram, plus 1,000 from Mecca and another 12,000 from Tob. The book of 1 Chronicles tells us all of that cost Hanun 34 tons of silver. That was an enormous sum. This all started because he wouldn't trust David. And now, rather than ask forgiveness, he is breaking the bank to fight David. And notice, it's only at this point when David sends his own troops. As we'll see, this is a defensive move from Israel. He's not trying to crush the Ammonites. He's trying to defend Israel. David doesn't go himself. He sends his commander, Joab. And verses 7 to 11 describe how things develop. As Joab advances towards Hanun and the Ammonite army, he realizes the Arameans hired by Hanun have circled round behind the Israelite army. Joab and his men are in a trap. And so they split into two sections. Joab's section turns to face the Arameans, the hired men. While Joab's brother Abishai leads the rest of the army facing Hanun and the Ammonites. And then Job prays this prayer in verse 12. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. The focus of this whole chapter is the foolishness of the Ammonites. But it's underlined here, in all of this, God does not forget his own people. Yes, God is reaching out in kindness to his enemies, but he doesn't forget his people. Those who are depending on him and trusting him. God's enemies cannot harm his people and get away with it. God's kindness is not softness. He will step in on his people's side. And that's what happens here, verse 13. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. 
When the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Notice two things here. First, apparently this all happens without any bloodshed. Israel's enemies just run. That's God's work. God intervenes here, but he does so with amazing restraint. Surprising patience. And then notice second, Joab does not press the fight here. When the enemy runs, Joab turns around and goes home. And that shows his orders from David were to defend Israel, not to crush Israel's enemies. What we're seeing is the patience of God is echoed in the patience of God's king. Earlier this morning we sang, God is slow to anger. And that's not just some idea the songwriter had. That's what God says about himself. In the book of Exodus, Moses said to God, show me your glory. And in response to that, God not only appeared, he described himself. He explained that his glory is his character. And one of the ways God described himself is slow to anger. Sometimes we see God bringing judgment in Scripture, and we think it's abrupt. But God's wrath and judgment never come abruptly. Yes, it may seem to you and me that God has struck very suddenly. It may look that way from our perspective. But if we could see the whole picture, we'd realize that sudden strike comes at the very end of long, long patience. What might have come suddenly from our perspective took a long time coming from God's perspective. Now normally we just can't see that. But here we get a glimpse of it. God is ruling Israel through his king. And God's king shows surprising patience. He could have told Joab to put these guys to the sword. But he backs off. Israel's enemies still have the chance to make things right. They could still ask for forgiveness and peace. Just like God's enemies today. No one is in too deep in their rebellion against God. No one is beyond his forgiveness. While people are still alive, they could bow like Mephibosheth. They don't have to keep the fight going. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, 
turn to me and be saved. He's still saying that through Jesus. The New Testament says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord and his king are slow to anger. There's still hope. But look what these particular enemies do. Verse 15. After the Aramaeans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Aramaeans brought from beyond the river Euphrates. They went to Halam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. David has been patient. But here his enemies show contempt for the king's patience. Remember, the Aramaeans didn't start out in this fight. They were hired by Hanun to help the Ammonites fight David. But now that he's in the fight, Hadadezer, the king of the Aramaeans, he decides to go all out. So he has more troops brought down from the north. That's where he comes from. And apparently he ruled over other kings in that area. He calls them in to back him up. And now, faced with this new attack, David's patience comes to an end. Verse 17. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel crossed the Jordan and went to Halam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. Earlier on, we noticed that David did not go out with the armies of Israel. During the first incident, he held back. Joab took charge of the army. But now, when the defiance and the danger are greatest, David leads the army. It's David, apparently, who kills the army commander, Shobak. We also noticed earlier there was no bloodshed in that first incident. But there's lots of it now. Thousands and thousands die. And it all came about because David's enemies refused to trust his kindness. Then they refused to respond to his patience. And so finally, they suffer death at the king's hand. God and his king are slow to anger. They are abounding in love. They are delighted to forgive. But we have to seek their forgiveness. We have to trust their kindness. 
We have to take advantage of their patience while we still can. Otherwise, we will experience the holy anger of God and his king. Time ran out for these enemies. Let's make sure it doesn't run out for us. The Bible says, and we heard it earlier, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time of salvation. We have today to respond to God's kindness. We can come today for forgiveness. None of us knows about tomorrow. When we hear about God's kindness and love, it's right that we're surprised. It's right that we say what David said a couple of chapters ago, who am I, sovereign Lord? Or even what Mephibosheth said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Those are appropriate responses. God's love is amazing. But it's also true. The offer is genuine. We can trust it. We can receive it. If you trust nothing else in this world, you can trust this. Don't turn away because it seems too good to be true. Look up at Jesus on the cross. Humiliated for you. There is your proof God's love is true. Our final song tells us we can be amazed and confident at the same time. We can wonder why he would love us And we can also come boldly and receive his love. So let's sing these truths, first of all to God, but also let's remember we're singing them here to one another. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Let's sing this together.